Welcome to Livable Launch, where we navigate the ever-evolving landscape of new residential construction. I'm your host, Matthew Slutsky, and today we are in Vancouver speaking with Greg Zayadi, president of Rennie. Greg is responsible for driving the long-term expansion and success of Rennie's brokerage, developer services, and advisory services. Today we are uncovering the latest trends, strategies, and market insights that will empower you to make your next move with confidence. Now let's step in bringing you one step closer to your next home. Greg, it's great to be here in your offices. They look awesome. The artwork, incredible. And I was just looking over here uh, behind me. There's a picture of your old office with the everything is awesome sign, which I am obsessed with. Uh, Welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks so much, Matt. It's uh, fun to be here. An exciting time right now. Obviously, a lot is happening in the market. Uh, Bank of Canada is making announcements. There's unemployment employment numbers, unemployment numbers, everything's out. But from your perspective, like, what is the most exciting launch of the season? What are you, what are you most excited for right now? I mean, come on. Every single launch is exciting. Uh, you know, I, I think for Rennie, we're representing a really nice... Uh, swath of developers of product across a bunch of regions. So, whether it's um, whether it's something like the Olsig Kundig building, which is pretty interesting, uh, West Group, 16th and Canby, uh, Olsig Kundig, world-renowned architect, probably designed some of the most amazing homes possible. Uh, works with a company called Discovery Lands, does a lot of their stuff. This is probably, from what I know, and I still need to validate it, is their first ever multi-family building in Canada. And that is a big deal. Um, so that that's that's really exciting. It's it's not huge scale, it's more boutique. It's 16th and Canby, it's concrete, it's mid-rise, that's really cool. Um, loud and proud, Grosvenor's um, uh, Brentwood block is is a big development. Brentwood obviously is probably one of the fastest growing neighborhoods. Um, certainly had a lot of really big developments come to market over the years, um, but this is Grosvenor, and that's one of the most storied brands in real estate, let alone in Vancouver. So, yeah, you know, th- there's definitely some fun stuff. Gardena by Intracorp is coming out with their second phase. Um, yeah, and then there's all the stuff that's already on the market, which I, I think, you know, I think as you and I have discussed a bit, uh, just the overall context and landscape of the market and getting a sense of what that really looks like is kind of cool. So, so looking at those projects you just mentioned, very different projects in different parts of the city. Who's buying right now? Like, what, what's the buyer profile like at each of the projects? Are they end users? Are they investors? Are they um, first-time home buyers? Like, who, who's actually buying at these projects right now? Yeah, I, I mean, again, because we're covering such a large segment of the market and so many different types of product, certainly in anything that's more boutique, infill, neighborhood development. So that might be stack townhouse, townhouse, west side, uh, four-story wood frame. Um, in it could be North Vancouver, it could be areas of uh, there's you know Surrey. Uh, certainly, we've got some stuff coming up in Squamish, which is going to be pretty amazing. Um, oceanfront development, whole nother discussion. 12, 15 years, maybe eight years if the market's good, it'll take to sell. Um, but you know, when, when we're looking at that type of product, it's definitely the end user. Um, you know, we had seen historically low levels of inventory for sale in the resale market in 2022, uh, tailing out of 2021. That started to come back now. Um, and we've seen more, you know, we, we moved from what was 
two months of available inventory on the resale market, we're now back at something more normal like four or five, which is a balanced market. When we saw that, there was just nothing for those end users to buy. People looking for homes, people getting married, people getting divorced, people having children, people moving into the city. So a lot of end users in that product. The large scale high rise, certainly um, the investors have, uh, have, have a, a, a large uh, appetite for that type of product, right? It's usually transit oriented. Um, it's in mixed use developments. It's got a very long time frame, right? Those developments are taking now three, if not four or more years to complete. So that really attracts the investor. And, you know, um, I know you're going to ask me like two questions and we've done in half an hour, but, um, I, you know, I think the other, the other part of that, that everyone has to appreciate, um, we always use the term, the, family investor. And this is something that I don't think a lot of people fully appreciate about uh, the market here in the Lower Mainland, is there are a lot of people who were buying as a family investment. And what I mean by that is uh, Metro Town was where you first started seeing it. And we're seeing it in a big way right now in downtown Surrey, is you've got people who live in the neighborhood, grew up in the neighborhood, moved into the neighborhood, and they've got they want to reinvest in the neighborhood. They like the development that's coming around the corner and, and they like investing in real estate. It's part of their portfolio, but they're not investing to necessarily flip it or rent it out. The truth is they don't know what they're going to do with it, but they're just investing in their neighborhood. And it could be a mother, brother, father, sister, aunt, uncle, someone might move in, someone might rent it. They, they really don't know the end use. So we've kind of always called that the family investor. And that's always been a big part of that, uh, large-scale high-rise development. I like, I love that term. I mean, it's something that we, that I actually have never used before, but I think it so hits the mark on, nobody knows what's going to happen in five, six, seven years. I mean, people are buying free construction and like, by the time this thing is ready, they thought they were going to be an end user. Now they're married and have two kids, Um, but they're investing in their neighborhood. I think that is, that's such a great way to look at it. Such an interesting idea. Um, Absolutely love that. If you look at Vancouver, um, or I mean, Rennie is across all of BC as well as now into the US. I mean, you, yep. have, you guys are, are a monster, uh, a good monster, uh, <laughs> but not a monster. Um, Vancouver is so unique. I mean, it, it's obviously surrounded by mountains. You're talking about oceanside projects coming up, um, which is, creates a really high price per square foot when the rest of the world kind of looks at it, or at least less rest of North America, um, just because there's not so much area to grow into. What is like the average price per square foot in the mainland? And, uh, you know, everyone says, you know, yeah. drive it until you can afford it. Like, what, how does that actually you know, play out? Yeah, it, it's, I, I can tell you, it's probably the biggest thing that everybody's grappling with, whether it's the federal government, the provincial government, the municipal governments, the developers, the consumer, this, this discussion of values and costs is constant. And, and this, is, this is not a uniquely Canadian, BC, or Vancouver problem. This is an urban market problem. And, and you know, if you look at a typical performa in Vancouver, land is now one of the smallest numbers on it. The time it takes to develop these things through process, through construction, through every stage from sales to marketing, all of that, that's a big cost on the performer, right? You're financing that throughout. So those two things make up one part. Construction is the big scary number now. 
Construction in many cases could be up to 50%. This is the hard cost on that project. So what we are seeing is generally you cannot find wood frame product brand new being developed for under 800, 900 bucks a foot. You're lucky. The average is closer to a thousand as you go to more urban areas or, um, you know, uh, like on on East Hastings, where there's a number of developments right now, Woodland Brock by uh, First Step, my buddy of mine, Sasha Ferris, who I adore, um, you know, that project, and he's super open with the information. It's a concrete podium, a concrete underground, and a couple stories of wood above. If it has a five in front of it, I wouldn't be surprised on construction costs. It definitely has a four in front of it. Um, so, you know, they're having to sell that at 1100 bucks a foot, 1200 bucks a foot, 1250 a foot to create any form of margin that allows for the banks to finance it. And I think, you know, these are the things that aren't always easy to understand or appreciate is that, you know, a developer needs a financeable project. A bank needs to feel that there's enough security in that project from a margin basis to finance it. Um, and then there's simply the cost of construction. So, you know, all markets are traveling between high 900s and really over a thousand a foot, all the way up to 15, 16 or $2,000 a foot for a downtown Vancouver project, because in downtown Vancouver, people had been paying 450, 550, 600 or more per foot. And then the construction costs on a project like that start to be well north of 600 a foot. I got my um, natural gas bill the other day and it was like a, um, you know, it said like my total bill for the month was like $312, but I only used like actually like $12 of natural gas, but actually outlined exactly where all the money went into that 300 and change. Yeah. You know, it shows the transportation costs and the, the federal cost, the carbon cost, all of these costs. And I always thought it'd be really interesting for a builder to actually be like, you know, you're complaining about these prices per square foot. Here's the actual breakdown. Like, obviously, it's, we have to make money. We're a builder, but yep. it is a risky thing. There Obviously, we have a profit, but here's actually why it's 2,000 a square foot and actually outline the price. That would be such a cool thing for a builder to try. It's, it's actually been a discussion before about like, just like when you go to the pump and you see the cost of gas exactly. and here's the taxes and here's your CAC and here's all of that. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's good to give people an understanding of, of why things are what they are. Um, and it's tough. I can tell you everyone struggles with it. Looking at what's, what you're currently launching versus inventory and your past projects, um, obviously there, there is a change to work from home, even if, you know, some companies are still work from office. There is this new kind of mentality on work from home that, um, it's much larger than it was pre COVID. Are you seeing any changes in unit designs? Are you seeing units getting larger or are you seeing changes to amenity packages because of that? Like, or is it just same, same as it always was we're building what, what we're building? Yeah. You know, I think initially post pandemic, you know, there was questions, will people ever go into a gym again? Um, will you ever get into an elevator with someone else again? And that started to drive discussions. What I always used to say is people aren't going to be asking, what are the amenities in my building? They're going to be asking, how does my building function, right? How is it that we live in this common building with other human beings and, and how does it operate? How do I go, or as Tracy Matajam said, from street to suite without touching anything? Um, so yeah, I, I think overall what we've seen is 
people take into consideration how people may be using their homes a bit differently. Certainly the impact of Uber, Amazon, um, DoorDash, these are things that people are trying to figure out the load on the building, right? Like how many deliveries are showing up a day? How big does the package room need to be? What are those types of deliveries? What does access look like? Security. Then you've got things like one of the problems that everyone's figuring out is e-scooter parking. Everybody's got an e-scooter parking. Like forget the car parking spot. What do I do with my e-bike? What do I do with my e-scooter? How are those things impacting it? Pets, obviously, during pandemic became a thing. So how are you creating a more pet-friendly building? Um, and yeah, I think from suite design, the question became, what is it about the space? It's not necessarily square footage because square footage is obviously a tough one because it drives cost. Um, I would say the bigger impact is really what, how it has driven more aspects of pre-sale or multifamily to other areas, you know, certainly Vancouver Island or Squamish or even up in areas like Pemberton, uh, Kelowna, the interior, all of those areas are seeing a huge amount of interest and demand because people, segments of the market, have more ability to be flexible in how they work. Even more so, people are making decisions that work wasn't always Maybe it's not as important as it once was. Um, and I think those are the things that are kind of driving uh, how the market is adapting. You made me, you know, you, you mentioned e-scooters. Um, what are people doing with e-scooters? I've never even thought of this because in, in Toronto, it's a um, semi-illegal to have e-scooters. Like it's, uh, I think there's like a $30,000 fine now if you don't Jesus. have like motorcycle insurance and you're whatever. Um, so we don't, Obviously, people do have them, but I don't think it's as large as here. Yeah. Do people actually have parking spots for them or do they carry them up to their... I, I think this is, I, I, you know, I, I, I've heard it anecdotally and it's come up in, in design development meetings with the developers that we're, we're hearing it's becoming a bigger thing, right? So um, if people are keeping them in their storage lockers, do they have plugs? Are people leaving them by parking spots? Are like, where are people leaving those bikes and those other things, let alone bringing them up, up into their suite and then you're getting into elevators with e-bikes and and other and they're, they're not light they're not easy so um yeah it's just it's another aspect of building living that that they need to grapple with first thing about how to plug in and then uh, now these e-scooters the next thought um talking about pre-construction rennie is also unique in that you do pre-construction but you also do resale yep how big is the pre-construction market here? Is it like a little tiny piece of the market? Is it uh, 70% of the market? And in a time where you have the, the market, pre-construction market needs to hit certain um, thresholds to actually get construction financing in a market where, you know, there may have not been as many launches as previously. If it is a large percentage of the market, what's going to, what, what's your thoughts on, on future supply? Well, let's use your data. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I think we, you know, Bob will say, and I can't remember who quoted it, everyone's entitled to their own opinion, but no one's entitled to their own facts. Um, and, you know, the data is what we look at. And, and reality is what we see as a general market in the public. And, and what's published is the information about MLS. So I think we're at about 35,000 transactions so far this year in the, in the resale market. And this is from Pemberton to Abbotsford. So the lower mainland region has one market, which is the two boards, Fraser Valley Board, Vancouver Board, Greater Vancouver Board. Um, so if you assume on average we're doing 45,000 transactions a year at the peak in 2020, 
one, I think we hit 68 or 70. In 2021, there were 22, almost 23,000 pre-sale transactions. That means that the pre-sale market was over 30% of the total market. That's a big number. Huge. Um, and that number seriously fluctuates. In 2010, it was 9,000 transactions. And then it cranked up to about 18,000 transactions in 2016. And in 2019, which was a really weak year in real estate, there was only 8,500 transactions. I think the other thing that people don't appreciate is townhomes are significant. Townhome is pre-sale. There's a lot of townhouse developments that sell one year, 18 months, six months before someone can move in. That market, and you know, one of the best years to look at in 2020 during the pandemic, get back to your question of did, did product change? No, but buying habits did. In 2021, or sorry, 2020, there were 4,300 townhome transactions in the pre-sale market. There was only 3,400 concrete sales. Wow. There was only 2,800 wood frame, four-story wood frame sales. Townhome sales and pre-sales were the largest segment in 2020. So, you know, that to me is a big deal when you start to understand that that's a lot of... we. The big discussion across Canada and everywhere is supply, 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 right? How do we get more supply? How do we get the right type of supply? The pre-sale market has been anywhere from 20 to 30 plus percent of the available market in any given year from the numbers that you guys allow us to track for the last 13 years. Yeah, and, and that's fascinating. I mean, that, that is such a huge percentage of the market. And I think it shows that, you know, again, when projects stall at launching or they push back a year, I mean, that changes the entire real estate market, both resale and pre-con, because it, it is such a, a strong piece of the market. You mentioned wood frame. Um, do you want to explain to listeners who may not know, like, what is the difference between a townhome, wood frame, concrete, mid-rise? Uh, like yeah, what, what, I, I mean... What's the, what, what's the terminology? And there's always a little bit of different vernaculars everywhere, but I, I think in the lower mainland, you know, the, obviously the, the first thing would be a single-family detached home. Um, the, the next form is townhouse product. So townhouse product would be at grade, no underground, uh, a garage, and anywhere from two to three, sometimes four stories, but doubtful of, of attached home living, right? So it could be a block of four units, six units. Townhouse developments can be anywhere from 10 homes to uh, 300 homes. Uh, the next type that you do see becoming more and more prominent is a stacked townhouse development. So a stacked townhouse development is now a concrete underground parkade, usually one or two levels, with one, two, three, or four levels of homes above. And that would usually be a mix of single level units and two level units. So stacked townhouse product is, is another great form of development from a type of home you can create in livability. Then you move to what is truly four-story concrete product or four-story uh, wood frame. And, and that is a concrete park grade with wood construction going four stories up. Um, you're starting to see six story wood frame or not starting, sorry, that happened years ago uh, that you now have six story wood frame product. Depending on the market and due to costs, you're starting to see a lot of four story and six stories product be built all in concrete. Um, and there's a continued evolution of, uh, of uh, 
CLT, right, which is cross-laminated timber, um, and and that form of construction, which is is a hybrid. It can have concrete, it can have steel, it has it has uh, a CLT components to it. And then you move to mid-rise concrete. You can't right now, you can't build anything over six stories in wood. There's, you know, there's Brockton Point, I think it's called up at UBC, which is, which is a mass timber building. Um, and you're starting to see a few more mass timber buildings, which are really concrete parkades, concrete cores with um, CLT flooring and, and mass timber structure. Um, yeah. And then there's obviously concrete high-rise. If you look at the difference between wood wood frames, so let's say four to six stories versus townhouse or stacked townhouse, which is the more, which is the preferred unit type? What would get higher price per square foot? Uh, honestly, they're probably pretty similar. It, it all depends on the market that you're in. Um, so that has to do with the type of zoning that the municipalities are allowing for and the type of densities. Developers basically look at the piece of land, see what they're allowed to zone it for and figure out what type of product type or what type of, of product is going to yield the most density and the most functional product. What's the, um, you know, again, look at these different styles. Obviously there's a lot of different architectural styles, but think about the big high rises of the area, some beautiful architecture in the city. Do you feel that the exterior architecture actually yields a higher price per square footage or is it more the builder just trying to make the city look nicer? Does it actually do anything from a purchasing perspective? It's funny when you said that, what ran through my head is I've had the good fortune over the years to get to spend time with some pretty amazing architects. And one in particular was uh, James Chang. James Chang's probably done more buildings in downtown Vancouver than any other architect. Uh, one specifically that I got to work with him on through West Bank and Ian Gillespie was Shangri-La. And what he talked about, interestingly, was the architecture itself, but also the front door, the lobby and the arrival. And he said, this is the front door to 300 different people's homes. And I think if you think about curb appeal, there's 300 people whose tower that curb appeal is. So I think architecture is important. Um, a lot of the architecture that you see is driven by the individual developers desire to push it as well as the city's expectation. Um, so, you know, we, we, we have to give Ian Gillespie a massive amount of credit. Um, and I've had the fortune of working very closely with him. He is probably one of the most passionate, driven, creative developers out there. And he wants to leave a mark on this city. He wants to be proud of it, as do so many other developers. And, and I think... You know, it's tough to design a building from the outside in, and it's tough to design a building from the inside out while meeting the expectations of the purchaser, the city, design committee, and a whole bunch of other things. So uh, architecture is important. Architecture also drives cost. You know, you want that beautiful building that twists or turns or has undulations and large decks and all of this. Just keep adding dollars to that performa because it costs a lot of money to do aspects of good architecture. Um, we're probably not allowed to swear on here, but I will. Uh, Robert A.M. Stern does what's called fuck you architecture. It is strong. It is solid. There's not a lot of design to it. 
um, that can also still be very expensive because of the materiality. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's needed and it drives some of the decision. Well, it looks beautiful too. Yeah. Uh, as I said, I mean, leaving a mark on the city is so important. Yeah. And we're in, I mean, listen, the, the office we're in is super cool. It was designed in 1996 by Peter Busby. Um, and he actually, I believe originally designed this to be, uh, to be his office. And, um, and this is cool architecture. It's done really, really well, and it's done really, really thoughtfully. And we had the really good fortune. We've got it listed right now, Epic House 2 by Arthur Erickson. Basically, one of Canada's, if not Canada's, most famed architects. Epic House 2, uh, built for um, uh, the Epic family. They still own it. Um, it's up in the British properties. It is on one acre of land. It is 6,000 square feet. It's available for $12.8 million if anyone's interested. I got to spend time at that house. Good architecture is special. It takes into account the landscape. It takes into account how you move through the home. It takes into account how you feel about it. Um, really good architecture. You can feel you can live in, you can understand. Not easy to do in multifamily, um, but the building that we're in certainly gives you an idea of it, right? Like this house is 120 people and, and, and all of our advisors get to come and spend time here and um, it'll put a smile on your face. There's no doubt, especially on the, uh, well, first of all, the office is fantastic. I mean, I, I just is really a, a great feeling being in this office, um, which says a lot coming from me because I, I'm a big believer in work from home, but I actually walked in here and I was like, first off, <laughs> no, I sorry, you. can't hire <laughs> you, man. <laughs> I went to, I, I tried going to the cafe across the street, which was called Rennie Cafe. Yep. I was like, wait a second, this isn't a cafe. This is actually their, um, own little restaurant. Which it's is, free. Which is awesome. Um, but the art, the openness, it, it's amazing. Um, again, on a smaller scale, beautiful exterior architectural, really livable interior architecture is not the hardest. I mean, it's hard. You need to be a good architect. Uh, but when it comes to the multifamily high rise, mm -hmm. combining incredible exterior architecture with incredible interior living space is really difficult, I find, because you you start getting these crazy curves and cantilevered things, and all of a sudden the actual interior spaces really are, are not that livable. So um, I love looking for great exterior and great interior. It, it, that is a home that, that, that we always talk about in, in so many aspects of the business, the art and the science, and, and you're sort of nailing exactly that. It's like, how does the art, art impact the science of the design, and how does the science of the need impact the exterior art or the interior art that is the interior design or exterior architecture? So uh, coming back to the kind of more statistics of the current market, mm -hmm. right now, obviously, Bank of Canada has held the rate this time. Unemployment levels are, are kind of being reported all over the place. What's what's the outlook for this quarter or this fall? Um, is it going to be a heavy launch season or builders saying, you know, let's wait until um, early 2024 to launch and push back? But what's actually happening in real time in the market? Uh, confusion? <laughs> uh, developers are struggling. They're struggling with the performa. Um, because the market won't bear any more pricing and the performance some points needs more because they're unsure about construction costs there. They, they were, they were, you know, a year ago, people were really nervous. Then people got scared. Then people got lost. They just didn't know what to expect, what to think, how to figure out this market. I think people are getting calm, if not comfortable 
but nobody is confident. And, and without that confidence, everyone is struggling to figure out when to launch, how to launch, what's my pricing. It's competitive out there right now. There is a number of large-scale developments, whether it be through Coquitlam, Metrotown has a bunch of projects coming to market or have come to market as we speak. And these are large-scale projects. And these are having to sell at twelve, thirteen, fourteen hundred dollars a foot. I was uh, I was chatting with Ward McAllister yesterday, uh, who's got a number of projects on the market throughout Coquitlam and Burnaby, and um, and you know he he's he's got to bring it to market. He's got stuff he's been sitting on a few sites he's been sitting on for six months, six quarters, and at some point they have to go. So people are optimistically and cautiously moving forward with developments. They might be pushing it out one or two quarters, but they've probably already been waiting one or two quarters. And then there's others who are just like, we must go now. Um, I can use Olsig Kundig, the one with 16th and Canby, Bo Jarvis, a, a good buddy of mine who, you know, I, I have the good fortune of sort of sharing roles in this industry with. And um, he just says, you know, we, we just got to get this on the market and go. We know we've got all the right pieces in place. It's 16th and Canby. It's Olsig Kundig. It is amazing. And the pricing is something that we're not sure where the market's going to feel about it. We know it's good pricing based on what the costs are. We, we know it's good product. And we know there's demand on the west side for this type of home. Um, but you just don't know how long it's going to take you to hit pre-sale tests. You just don't know who else might launch around the corner and take two or three of your buyers. So those are the questions that a lot of developers are grappling with. Um, but everyone is just having to put their head down and, and work a bit harder. Talking about working harder, and I guess in some cases you could see that as being expansion. Uh, Rennie is doing some pretty crazy stuff right now. Uh, <laughs> Please don't say crazy, but we're trying. <laughs> no, but you guys, I mean, the, the way that we launch projects in Canada, very different than the U.S., uh, but Rennie is moving into the U.S. Correct. Um, anything you could say to that? Where, where are you guys looking? Are you guys... Oh my God, if you could only, if we were doing this in about three weeks, I have a feeling I could talk about something super cool that we're getting to support, participate in, bring to Canada, actually. Um, uh, yeah, we, we've actually worked in the U.S. I've worked in the U.S. Canadian developers have worked in the U.S. more than anyone realizes. Um, some of the biggest landholders in Bellevue, in Seattle, in San Diego, the largest developer is Nat Boza. Nat Boza is the largest developer in San Diego and has been for a while. In LA, Ani, Townline works down there. Many others have also worked in LA. Um, so on a presale basis, Canada's always been part of the presale market. We've worked in Dallas. We've, we, we, we are very active on one of the largest projects known as Avenue in Bellevue. It is, it is, it's probably one of the more impressive projects conceived. Um, on the Cascadian corridor in a long time. And, uh, and our developer, uh, Andy Laka Fortress, um, it, it has a huge passion for bringing something amazing to Bellevue. So, so we've always been active in the US. Um, the pre-sale market in the US, the builder market in the US is not what we know it to be in, in Vancouver or Toronto or other areas of Canada. There's probably eight to 12 cities throughout North America that have what we know as 
concrete, high-rise, urban, multifamily development. Um, but we see opportunity down there, so we want to be down there. The real opportunity is to grow the brokerage. And Scott Bond, who was with Zillow for a number of years, with uh, Property Finder more recently in, 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 uh, in Dubai, um, he's just joined us. Um, we've got some great advisors who work with us. We've got a great company that we've worked with forever called Eric Marin Associates. And Eric's been uh, our, our, our partner and, and supporter in everything we've done in Bellevue and Seattle for probably 20 years. So we're just, we're, we're just linking up with the best people we know and taking what we think is a, is a thoughtful brand, uh, a great little culture, uh, a level of expertise that, uh, that, you know, is available throughout the U S but we're like a mini MBA here in, in, in the lower mainland in what we do. Um, it, real estate is a sport. Real estate is an addiction. Um, real estate is an expertise that has allowed a lot of really, really great people to do some really amazing things um, in other areas of the North American and I'm sure throughout the world. Well, wow, that was a big statement. <laughs> well, very excited to see what, what you do in the U.S., um, Maybe more importantly, I think I'm coming back meeting with your team in three weeks. So maybe um, be right time for a quick little podcast uh, announcing this big thing. Uh, happy to <laughs> chat. I, I honestly, I, I think it's really important what uh, what you guys at Livable are doing. Um, I, I think the team, obviously, you and I have gotten to spend some time together, and, and Jeff, who's driving everything forward. We were down at, at Inman Conference together. Um, from what you're doing with the data through Zonda Urban uh, for the portal that Livable. We're not going to try and compete with you. That's why you and I are sitting here today. I mean, we love our .com and we love Rennie.com and there are some amazing things about it, but we can't be all things to all people. And I think you guys are able to do that with Livable. And um, yeah, excited to see where it all goes and chat again. Awesome. Thank you very much for your time. Thanks so much, Matt. Great having you on the show. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning into Livable Launch, your go-to podcast for all things condo and new home launches. We hope today's episode has given you valuable insights into the exciting world of real estate development and the minds behind these remarkable projects. We're incredibly grateful to our esteemed guests and our dedicated listeners like you who continue to make this podcast a success. Remember, Livable Launch is here to keep you informed, inspired, and engaged with the ever-evolving landscape of condo and new home developments. We value your feedback and want to ensure that Livable Launch remains your trusted source of information. So don't hesitate to reach out. Remember, we're all in this exciting journey together. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on our website or social media platforms. And if you're a builder industry expert who wants to share your expertise and be featured on our show, please get in touch. We'd love to hear about your latest projects, launches, and insights. Thank you again for joining us on Livable Launch. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Stay up to date with the latest condo, and new home launches, trends, and insider knowledge. Until next time, keep building, dreaming, and exploring the world of real estate. Remember, Livable Launch is here to guide you for every step of the way. I'm Matthew Slutsky, and this is Livable Launch signing off. Happy building, and see you soon.